Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. So the question they were asked uh, for that on the street interview is, if you had more than one life, what would you do with it? And that was the question that they were answering. And some of those answers were fascinating, but I think the most fascinating part uh, about the thought is the reality that we only get one life, even though we might wish for more. We only get one life. And in fact, D.H. Lawrence along these lines said this, if only we could have two lives, the first one in which to make our mistakes and the second one in which to profit by them, right? There is this underlying desire to, to be able to erase the difficult things, the challenges, the hurdles, the pain points that we've gone through, maybe even to live life over again. But the reality is there are no dress rehearsals for life. You're on stage right out of the gate, right away. And the reality is, too, that we all make many mistakes. I have made many, many, many mistakes. And so that is our reality, that we only get one life and, and, and that we're all going to make mistakes. And we have made many mistakes. And I present you with a big question. How, then, can we make the most of the rest of our lives? How can we make the most of the rest of our lives? Well, the good news off the top is that God loves you and that he has great purpose for you. If you didn't know that, let me tell it to you today. God loves you and he has great purpose for you. He has great purpose for the rest of your life. And Paul actually describes for us how we can make the most of the purpose that God has for us, how we can make the most of the rest of our lives, how, how we can live life to the full as Jesus describes in John 10, 10. And he writes it in Romans 12, 1 through 2. If you've got a paper Bible, you can open it up there, but it'll also be on the screen. But he writes it in Romans 12, 1 through 2. 1 through 11 of Romans is some of the most beautiful theological writing that's ever been put to paper. And it is all about what God has accomplished on our behalf. And then when we get to verse 12, or chapter 12, rather, verse 1, it is Paul saying, and this is your response because of what God has accomplished on your behalf. Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, meaning in view of all that God has done for you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Another version, my favorite version, actually says, this is your reasonable service. So in light of what God has already done for you, in light of what God has already accomplished, in light of what God has done on your behalf, return that by offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, right? Then you'll know what to do with the rest of your life his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the first question under this big heading of what do I do with the rest of my life is this, 
What should we do to make the most of the rest of our lives? What should we do? The first thing that we need to do is make a clean break with our past. Okay? We need to make a clean break with our past. Listen, you cannot go forward looking in the rearview mirror. Okay? Try it. Get in your vehicle today and try to go forward while looking in the rearview. You cannot move forward looking over your shoulder. You cannot step into the purpose God has for you if you're still living in the condemnation of a former season. We have to make a clean break with the past. We're called not only to make a clean break with former decisions, but we're called to make a clean break with former ways of life. This is why Paul says that we're called to be different. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world. Or as J.B. Phillips translates it, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. No, instead, we are called to be different. We are called to be different. You see, this world, because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall and, and the pride of humanity wanting to be God rather than worship God, this world is hostile to God and the things of God. And that's the challenge. There's this huge pressure to conform, to conform to the culture, to conform to the hour, to conform to the moment, to conform to our workplace, to conform to our neighbors, to conform to whatever political platform we believe in at the time. And God is calling us to something greater. He's calling us to non-conformity. Yes, as Christians, we should seek common ground with all people. That's what Paul writes also, so that God might draw some to himself. And yes, we need to participate in culture and not wholly withdraw from it. We're not Amish, although I do respect some of how they do their thing. You know, in the Amish community, before they introduce a new piece of technology, they watch it for several years to see what it does to people. And then they may or may not introduce it into the community. That may be a practice that you want to consider for yourselves. We also need to be holy and distinct people. We need to be holy and distinct people. And many of my friends who don't follow Jesus, and if you don't have friends who don't follow Jesus, let's get that box checked. Many of my friends who don't follow Jesus, none of them have ever said to me, that the thing I like most about you is you abandoning your faith to try to be like me. They've never been excited about that. You know what I like about you, Crump? Your capacity to conform. No. No, in fact, what I've found over the years, what I've found over the years, and as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm working on my next book right now about faith and politics. Y'all pray about that. Um, and, and one of the stories I tell in that book is a conversation with one of my friends who's an atheist. And what I found over the years is that even when people don't believe what you believe, they want to believe that you believe what you believe by how you behave. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're, they're not looking for you to follow their pattern. They're hoping that your pattern is real. In fact, Gandhi said this, and it has pricked my heart more times than I can count. He said, I, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. What our host culture needs to see from the church is not emulators of it, but imitators of God. That's what it needs. 
And the call for the Christian is to be in, but not of, right? Yeah. Restorers, but not repeaters. Distinct, but not indistinguishable. Holy, but not hiding. That's the call. That's the call. But what's the temptation we face every day? Can we be honest? Can we be honest? This is what I've always wanted to do. I wanted to get old enough to slowly take my glasses off when making a poignant point. Can we be honest? Every single day, every single day we face the temptation to to take off our Christian uniform. Every day. We face the temptation to not remain distinctive. To not remain different. That's the temptation to, to be a Christian in a Christian environment. And that as soon as we leave the Christian environment to be something wholly other. And it creates a tension in our lives. It does. It creates a a deep sense of a lack of satisfaction. It creates a disconnect. It creates a cognitive dissonance. Because we are not meant to be one way in one room and another way in another room. We're meant to be integrated people. We're meant to be integrated people, even peculiar people. Now, that doesn't mean that you're called to be a separatist. Doesn't mean that you are locked into King James speech, right? That don't make your prayers any holier to throw these and thou's in there. It doesn't mean that you got to become strange. It doesn't mean any. In fact, you should be quite normal. And you should be dealing with the normal things of life in a specifically Christian way, which will be appealing to people who are trying to figure out what to do from day to day. We're called to be distinct. We're called to be different. So Paul says, break with the past. Make a new start. Be transformed. Let God transform you inwardly. Let him make you a integrated person like Jesus. Jesus was the most fully integrated human being that ever lived. But I also think that some of us have a fear of change. You know, it's interesting that sometimes our most destructive behaviors have become more comfortable than the idea of freedom. And so we fear change. We think to ourselves, well, I'm not sure if I can do that. And it reminds me of two caterpillars sitting on a leaf. (laughs) And they see a butterfly flying by. And one of the caterpillars says, I can't wait to be transformed. And the other one says, I don't think I want to go all the way up there. I'm more comfortable, listen, I'm more comfortable in my old skin. I'm more comfortable where I am. Am. And what we miss out on when we hang on to our old skin is the beautiful wings that God wants to give us. On the other side of that transformation, God wants the very best for us. But what he's asking is that we would leave behind our old skin so we can fly. You know, I heard a story once of a pastor who was asked to take a funeral for someone who was unhoused. 
someone who lived out on the streets. And unfortunately, and this has been my experience in Atlanta over these several years now, uh, if someone has been living out on the streets for too long, uh, they can often be difficult. They, they, they can often be difficult, challenging. Uh, and this woman in particular was quite the same. Uh, she was rude to people. She was aggressive. Uh, and, and, and because of that, you, as the story goes, you wouldn't expect many people to even be at her funeral. However, this woman had also inherited a large estate before she died. She'd become a very wealthy woman. She had several million dollars. She had an apartment in a posh part of town. She had lots of very valuable paintings. And as the saying goes, where there's a will, there are relatives. People started coming out of the woodworks. At the funeral, there was masses of people. Long lost cousins from Australia, executives, lawyers. The pastor officiating the funeral upon seeing the guest list was fascinated to find out why someone who was so wealthy would continue living on the streets. So eventually he asked one of them and the man responded, I guess she didn't want to leave behind the life she knew. And that's the tension we live in, isn't it? That with all that Jesus offers, life in its fullness, there are people who decide that I don't want to leave these destructive things behind. I don't want to leave these destructive people behind. It reminds me of an old juvenile song that I cannot quote in this setting. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Huh? <laughs> Unless we leave those things behind, though, we can't enjoy all the treasures that God has for us. And Paul says in Romans 12 that God has some wonderful treasures for us. He says that God has for us sincere love. What is sincere love? Well, the word used there is a Greek word that means unhypocritical. It is the word that, that was used to describe the mask that people would wear in a Greek tragedy or a Greek play. And what Paul says is that in life, we can put on masks. If we're uncomfortable with who we are, we put on a mask. If we don't want people to see our vulnerabilities, we put on a mask. If we don't want people to really know us while simultaneously wanting to be known, we put on a mask. And the sad part about that, especially in the church, is very often what you get is two masks meeting. And neither party is seen. But sincere love, on the other hand, when you know God loves you, when you know God loves you, and when you know who you are in Christ, guess what? You get to drop the mask. You don't have to hide. Because at the end of the day, your opinion doesn't matter of me if my identity has already been established by my father. So I don't have to wear a mask. You can drop the mask. You can be yourself. You can be authentic. That is what God wants for our lives. This is why we do small groups. You understand that the, 
that the prevailing goal statement for our small groups is that people would take off the mask so that they can be seen and loved by others, so that they can be open and honest and vulnerable. We think we will impress people with our strengths, but the reality is we connect with people through our vulnerabilities. That's how we connect. Now, Paul goes on to say another treasure that God gives us is enthusiasm in your relationship with him. Romans 12, 11 reads this way, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In other words, don't just have a one-off experience with God. This is meant to last a lifetime. This is not supposed to be a youth camp high that you've got to re-up on every single weekend. It's supposed to be rooted in your soul and last a lifetime. Have you ever asked yourself the question, where do I want to be in my relationship with God in the next 10 years? We ask the question about schooling. We ask the question about career. We ask the question about children. We ask the question about homes. We ask the question about status. When is the last time we've asked ourselves, where do I want to be in my relationship with the living God in 10 years time? God knows I don't want to be in the same place that I am right now. What matters is moving past our initial experience and cultivating that relationship with God. It is long term. God loves you and he wants the best of everything for you. But having the best of God means leaving behind the worst of you. So that you can walk in the fullness that he has for you. Why? Because there's so much in our host culture that leads to damage. We can try to mask it. We can try to hide it. We can slap a parental advisory label on it. We can make reality TV shows around it. But what we're actually watching is people's lives get destroyed. We see the damage. We see broken people with broken hearts. People whose lives are messed up. They're, they're hurt. And that is not what God wants for us. That is not what God wants for you. It is not what he desires. What he wants is your good. And yet when Paul writes, listen, he doesn't condemn the culture. Even though the host culture that he was writing to was very immoral, there is no sense of condemnation in his words. It is a pleading, don't do this any longer because it is going to destroy your life. He doesn't say, oh, you terrible people, you horrid bunch. No, he, he, he says that, that this is not for your good, so don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And the good news is that God always forgives. He does. You can make a fresh start every day. You can make a fresh start today. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You can make a fresh start today. And that's the good news of the gospel. That, that Jesus, who was perfect and knew no sin, was made to be sin for us so that we, by placing our trust in him, could be made God's righteousness. 
if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and that he indeed died for our sins, then every wrong is canceled. Every mistake is erased. Every horrible act is put under the blood of God and we are made brand new. That is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus took the charges. And then he cleared the account. And then he rose from death with all power. And he secured your position forever. That's the good news. And for some of us, today is the first day you're going to believe that. Listen, here in Water Place, they're online. Today is the day. The Lord has been wooing you for some time. It's not time to resist anymore. God has good things for you. And the best thing he has for you is relationship with him because he wants you. And all the other things will flow from that. In Paul's words, you also see some other beautiful things about love, the radical love of Jesus that allows us to love our enemy the radical love of Jesus that allows us to wade into the mess and the chaos of life and not be shaken or shattered, the radical love of Jesus that helps us to deal with folks that are hard to deal with in a way that honors God, not in a way that we think they deserve. So how do we make the most of the rest of our lives? Well, number one, we make a break with our past and we conform to Christ instead of to this world. But how do we do it? How do we do it? Well, Paul tells us how we do it. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That means that everything that you have, everything that you have, everything that you own, everything that you see, everything that you love, you hold it with an open hand toward God. Everything. Everything from your bank account to the back corner of your closet. It's his. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. If you do that, all your other priorities will come together. I promise you. Speaking of priorities, a little levity here. I came across an advertisement in an East African newspaper, and it was very genuine. It was a farmer, a Kenyan farmer who was looking for a wife. And uh, he advertised in the personal columns of the East African Standard, and, and this is what he put down. He said, Nanyuki farmer seeks lady with tractor with a view to companionship and possible marriage. Please send a picture of the tractor. <laughs> he didn't have his priorities together. It's very easy for us to get our priorities wrong. But when we experience the love of God in relationship with God, our priorities change. Our priorities change. And what God wants becomes what we want. Right? And how God moves becomes how we move. What God loves becomes what we love. And those things that are antithetical to who God is and how he moves and how he loves. Well, we cut them off. That's our primary priority. Our second priority is people. You can't do this on your own. Second plug, get in a small group. 
Okay? You can't do it by yourself. Christianity is not a solo sport. You need to be a part of a community. Listen, you need to make church a priority. I'm going to just go ahead and say it. I know you got a lot going on. I know you're busier than Barack Hussein Obama was when he was in office. And yet somehow he still managed to shoot ball three days a week and smoke a pack of camels. You got time to make church a priority. It's 80 minutes a week. Think about that. It's 80 minutes a week. A week that is life-changing and soul nourishment for you and also putting you in relationship with people who will love you, walk with you, challenge you, hold you, pick you up, stand you up, tell you who you are in Christ and not allow you to drift into some foolishness that you ran from. That's what it's supposed to be. Make it a priority. Prioritize the community of God and then prioritize your ambitions. Prioritize your ambitions. If you prioritize the community of Christ, you will prioritize your ambitions. Because what does the Bible say? The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. And then all the other things will be added. And that's what I love about God. God didn't say seek only. He didn't say you can't have none of the fun stuff. He said seek first. Get your priorities right. And then the other stuff will ultimately be added. In other words, don't make secondary things primary things. In other words, don't make good things God things. In other words, don't make temporal things ultimate things. Seek first the kingdom and all of the other things will be added. I mean, really think about this. Suppose you make $100 billion in your lifetime. $100 billion. When you get to heaven, what you think God going to say? Wow. I'm impressed at your capacity to secure the bag. No. No. It's monopoly money on the other side of eternity. What if you make your ambition to be the chairman of a major corporation. And you get to heaven and say, yes, God, I became the president of the largest bank in the world. You think he's going to be excited and say, well done. We haven't had one of those here before. <laughs> the point is that when we make secondary ambitions our primary ambitions, then we lose. But if we reorder our priorities, then we win. For instance, I'm not against you making money. Please, stack that bread. We're trying to finish the front of this building. It's got to happen. Okay? But make sure you want to make more money for the right reasons. Make sure you want to make more money because you know that through that money, you can eradicate disease. You can help the poor. You can make a real difference in the world. If you want to be the president of a large bank, fantastic. But make sure that you want to do that because with that prominent position in society, you can help people who live on the margins. You can actually use that to make a difference in the world. Money is a blessing. Status is a blessing. 
if we leverage those things in order to bless others. That's why Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But you got to have your priorities right to believe that. And then you look at every aspect of your life. Are your priorities right? Not only your relationship with God and relationship with people, but in relationship with money and ambition, but are all of the areas of your life, are they aligned? Your eyes, your eyes. You can use your eyes for lust and jealousy, or you can look at people and say, you know what? That's a person that God loves. Our mouths. You know, James said that the tongue is so powerful. It is the smallest thing in the body, but it is so powerful. It turns a ship like a rudder. It can set a forest ablaze. And you can use your mouth to bless people, to speak life to people, to be a life-giving presence rather than tearing them down. And I promise you that you will make a magnificent difference because very few of us have somebody who is regularly just speaking life to us, reminding us of who we are. Use your words for the rest of your life to bless people. In fact, let me scare you a little bit. The Bible says that we're going to give an account for every word that ever came out of our mouth. You may as well make them blessings. Your hands. Do you use them to serve or to throw? How are you using your, your sexuality? Is it for your own gratification as a married couple? Is it for your own gratification or is it for the blessing and benefit of your partner? Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means everything, all of it is his. And then the last thing here is asking the question, why do we do it? Why do we do it? St. Augustine said this. He said his service, meaning serving God, is perfect freedom. His service, serving God, is perfect. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. We do it because it is the absolute quintessential essence of freedom. And we do it because it is God's gift to us. In fact, I... I heard of a wealthy English baron called Baron Fitzgerald, and, and he had only one son. He had one son. And his son died tragically very young while the baron was away from home. And he was devastated. He said, what am I going to do? And so he started to invest his life in the paintings to get his mind off of it. He started to invest his fortune in the paintings. He went around the world collecting valuable paintings. And when he died, his will called for there to be an auction for the paintings. And at this auction, there were people from all over the world who had come because there were such valuable paintings and they wanted to bid for them. But you know what the baron did? The baron put a stipulation in his will. He said that as people bid, as people bid, what's going to happen at the auction is that the first painting that has to be sold is the painting entitled My Beloved Son. It wasn't very valuable. It was one that he had done way before he got interested in art. But that was a stipulation. You have to bid on this one first. Only one person bid on it. 
someone who had actually worked for the family at another time and who knew the son and who loved the son. He bid for it and he got it for a very small amount of money. But here's what the baron wrote into his will. He said, whoever takes my son gets everything else. And then the auction is over. Whoever takes my son gets everything. And that's what God is saying to us. Whoever takes my son, whoever takes Jesus, they get everything. They get everything. If God was prepared to give you his only begotten son, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you're worthy, but because he's good. If he is prepared to give you his own son, what will he withhold from you? If you take the son, you get it all. And in getting it all, and in getting it all, you have absolute clarity on how to please God, how to know his will, and what to do with your life. And so my question to you today is will you take the son? Will you take the son so that you might have all other things? Let's pray. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that you would seal this word to our hearts and that we would be transformed because of it. Father, help us to make a break with our past. Help us to organize our priorities around making our lives a sacrifice to you. Help us walk in the gift that it is to take your son so that we might have all the rest and so that we might be sure beyond sure of what it means to make the most of the rest of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.